the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. My name is Gabriel Stewarts. I'm the CFO at Sanford Law Firm, and you're listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Run your law firm the right way. The right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Hello, Tyson. This is our fourth episode of the day. I'm excited. I think this one's going to be a special one. I'm really excited about our guest, and I really like his email signature, which I noticed today. I'm going to ask him about that. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So, Gabriel, welcome. Tell us about your journey and how you got to where you are now. Man, I have the weirdest professional journey. I, I tell everyone that I meet, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up yet. I'm still going to find that out one day when I finally do grow up. But, you know, I went to school for photography, graduated with a fine art degree, spent almost a decade in nonprofit working in everything from special events to fundraising to operations and then ended up in plaintiff's side law, wage and hour practice three years ago, almost to the day here in Little Rock, Arkansas. Awesome. And your firm has really grown in the last three years. Can you talk a little bit about the firm's formation and then sort of where it's gone since then? So Sanford Law Firm was founded by Josh, our managing partner, just over 20 years ago, solo practice. And today, fast forwarding just a little bit, we really specialize in wage and hour plaintiff's law. So we're helping people under the Fair Labor Standards Act over time and minimum wage violations getting paid what they are owed by their employers. But that was certainly not his intent when he started off. He would tell you the story that his own dad wouldn't even hire him. The state of Arkansas had a spinning freeze. He lost his first job and that's how he wound up practicing law by himself. And in 2009, came across Fair Labor Standards Act and uh, there was a guy working in the oil field who had worked, I want to say, 120 hours in the past few days. And obviously, there's a violation when you're only being paid for 40 hours a week. And uh, so he took this guy's case. And uh, it turns out that there was a lot of wage violations down in Texas. And him and some other attorneys started to take these cases on. And that's really what started the growth. Um, it had been a very small law firm up until that point. And then this is something that was talked about at the Maximum Lawyer Conference back in June, which I really enjoyed. One of your presenters talked about uh, niching down. So getting really, really specific with the type of law you practice. That's what we did. As we grew, we got even more focused on practicing wage and hour law. So 
We stopped doing other types of law, really moved into this. 2015 is when that became our primary focus. And then when I came in 2019, it was a group of attorneys practicing law and I was brought on as an operational lead. And so over the past three years, what we've really focused on is not adding it. We haven't added any attorneys to our headcount, but we've added a lot of staff, a lot of processes, technology, which is what I'm passionate about. I love automating everything I possibly can. If you can do it by automation, you shouldn't be doing it by hand. And, uh, and that's what we spent the last three years doing is automating as much as we can, focusing on firm culture, organizational structure to really prepare us for growth. And this is a good segue because I want to ask you about your role specifically. What is your title and what do you do? Like, Tell us more about that specific. Yeah. So my job title is CFO, which is really, I would say, a misnomer. If, if anyone listening is familiar with the EOS model, the framework by Gino Wickman, I'm the integrator for the organization. So Josh is the visionary. He's the big picture guy. He's doing the case strategy. And then my job is to take that vision and translate that into a reality that works. And so that means functional leadership over our core areas. That means thinking about processes, putting in place all the systems. They're going to really let us run effectively as an organization. So CFO is the job title, but I'm an integrator. So I'm taking everything and breaking it down into component pieces and then turning that back into systems that can run. Gabriel, we get a lot of people who push back on the idea of hiring an integrator. We have a lot of people that are familiar with all the traction terminology and everything, but we have a lot of people who push back on hiring whatever you want to call them, a CFO, a right-hand person, the integrator. We get a lot of people pushing back on that. So talk to us about how you've helped the firm grow in your role. Like Help us justify why people need a Gabriel in their lives. Obviously, I'm biased because I'm in the integrator role. So, you know, you, you're going to have to take whatever I say with a grain of salt. But I think that the, the, the basic idea is this, that you go to law school. I'm not an attorney. You go to law school uh, and you learn how to practice law and you're great at that. But that doesn't mean that you want to spend your time running a business, thinking about systems, thinking about processes and finance and HR and all of those boring things. You want to practice law or maybe you're an attorney, but then that's the thing that you enjoy doing. Those are very different spaces to inhabit. And so, I mean, the fundamental idea of division of labor, which is that certain people need to specialize in certain parts of a business, has been around for a very, very long time. And and frankly, the attorney mindset, the law firm mindset does go way, way back, right? The idea of partnerships as the kind of a viable business as like a mainline business entity is something that's very old and attorneys are one of the few professions that still hold to that. You, if you look adjacent to medical, you're going to see that obviously hospitals aren't run by doctors. They're run by, by business leaders and operational specialists. And so I think that on some level, you know, my justification would be, look, attorneys are just late to the party here and they're getting to get there anyway. But functionally, it's do you want to be doing something that you weren't trained to do or do you want to bring in someone who's trained in all these other areas to do that and free you up to do the things that you love and that you're good at? That's I was actually going to ask you for a bold prediction. I mean, are we seeing the beginning of this transition in the legal field where we're going to move over to that model? If people don't outsource this part of their business, they're going to be left behind. I mean, yes, you have sole proprietorships running a lot of different things, photography and other white collar services. But if you look at the broader landscape, 
you don't have large entities that aren't being run by professional operators. And especially as we move into a less regulated environment where we're moving away from only lawyers having access to equity, that's going to change so fast. You know, you've got LegalZoom already moving into the legal services space in Arizona. In a couple of years, they're going to be everywhere all the time because they focused operations before anything else. It's, it's about user experience. It's about operational efficiency. And you can, you'll be able to survive in the new environment, but you're not going to have large law firms that aren't doing this. And, and really, the larger end of the law firm, I'd say once you get above 20 people in a law firm, I don't know any that don't have this position already hired. I think that it's going to be your smaller, maybe mid-sized law firms that are doing okay, that are making the money that they want to make, that are comfortable in this area. But I do think that the middle of the market's going to get gutted by firms like LegalZoom that are offering a lot of the same services, which is kind of smaller jobs. And then they're going to offer those at a lower cost with a better user experience. And so some people are going to find themselves kind of caught off guard if they don't make moves. Gabriel, so often happens on this show, I have lots of different directions I could take things. I guess one of the questions I have is, how do you work with your visionary? If you don't mind sharing a little bit about how, like I'm a 10 quick start on the Colby Index. I drive my team crazy. I have literally 10 new ideas every other day. And, you know, like they sort of have to give me the stiff arm and help me sort of sort out what's actually important. How do you work with your visionary? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what's helpful is that I love ideas too. I have ideas. I love ideas. I'm very opportunity oriented. And so I love talking about those things. And I think if you're going to be a good integrator, you can't be a change averse, fearful person. You have to be able to have those conversations, engage in that ideation process with your visionary, and then be able to then bring that back and narrow that in to the framework that you've set. What are the goals that we're trying to accomplish? Where are we trying to go as a firm? You know, what's our team's bandwidth, right? So you have to ask those really specific questions about, okay, great, we had this fantastic discussion about all the new stuff we want to do, but then what are the, you know, what are the things we're going to pick and choose? And do we have bandwidth for those? How would we actually implement that? So I see myself as connecting the big picture, the new visions, the excitement with what's the reality right now and how do we move forward to the goals that we have set together. And I think it's really, you start by getting buy-in, right? If you were my visionary, I'd say, okay, well, what's the long-term, what's the big picture? You're going to come into the office with 10 ideas every day and that's great. Like you're not, you're going to starve if you don't have new ideas, but we're not going to be able to implement them, you know, and we have to have some kind of rubric, some kind of framework for deciding which ideas do we implement now, later or not at all. So you talked about buy-in when it comes to your, you know, the visionary, but I wonder about buy-in when it comes to like employees. So you are the integrator, you get, you get the visionary's vision, you go and you integrate it. Talk about your experience when it comes to the actual buy-in from employees. Yeah, obviously that can be a challenge and there's different reasons why people don't want to buy in some people and it's really like top to bottom, right? So at the top end, you've got people who just don't buy the vision for the firm at all. And those people probably aren't a long-term fit all the way down to there's people that are just afraid of change in their jobs, or they think that it's going to make their lives more difficult and it might make them more difficult for the short term. If it's, even if it's going to make them more difficult in the long term, but I would say two things. One is we have 38 people in our firm and my relationships are focused almost entirely on my five direct reports. So I put all of my energy into those people who then put their energy into their reports. And so when I need to bring in change to the organization, I have a team of people who I know trust me enough and understand my thinking well enough that I can 
shape these ideas, figure out how to think and talk about this change in a way that it can be more broadly executed across the organization. The other part is just basic change management understanding. And there's a framework uh, that I love. It's called ADKAR. There's a book on it. It's A-D-K-A-R. So it's really the sequencing of how do you bring change into any kind of an organization or group of people. So you, you create awareness. First, people need to understand that there's a possibility of change. Then you have to focus on the desire for change, then the ability to actually make that change happen, then the knowledge for how you do that. And then finally, you have repetition, which is if you're going to change something, and this is where a lot of the bandwidth comes in, people have to hear about that over and over and over and over and over. If you're coming into the office every day with a new idea, you're actually never going to get anything done. You have to limit yourself and then repeat a lot. Running your own practice can be scary, whether you're worried about where the next case will come from feeling like you're losing control over your growing firm or frustrated from being out of touch with everyone working under your license, the stress can be overwhelming. We will show you how to turn that fear into a driving force of clarity, focus, stability, and confidence that eliminates the roller coaster of guilt-ridden second-guessing and mistake-making to get you off that hamster wheel for good. Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time is a step-by-step playbook that shows you how to identify what your firm needs and how to proactively get it at every stage of the game so you are prepped and excited for the inevitable growth that will follow. Name the lifestyle that you want, and we'll show you how to become a maximum lawyer in minimum time. Find out more by going to MaximumLawyer.com forward slash course. You're listening to the Maximum Lawyer podcast. Our guest today, Gabriel Steritz, he's the CFO slash integrator at Sanford Law out of Little Rock, Arkansas. We're really grateful for Gabriel joining us today. Gabriel, one of the things that intrigued me that you mentioned was that you, your firm had done a bunch of hiring, but not lawyers. And I'd love to hear the firm's perspective on, you know, scaling, but without lawyers right necessarily. Yeah. So we have taken a lot of inspiration from the personal injury uh, industry, which I think is pretty far advanced in terms of what I've seen in the legal industry in general. They've brought a lot of best practices from scaling up and Jim Collins methodologies and Gino Wickman. And so the staffing models, the the ratios of attorneys to staff are going to vary wildly by your practice area. But what we have been pushing toward is closer to a one and a half to one staff to attorney ratio. And we're doing wage law and I wouldn't, I can't be prescriptive and say that, you know, that applies to any other practice area. But I think the guiding principle is you want to remove from attorneys work that non-attorneys can do. And that's something that y'all talk about all the time, right? There's a lot of ways to do that. You talk a lot about outsourcing, you talk a lot about automation, in-house staff is just another part of that. And it, and really you just want to push as much out of attorney's hands as you possibly can, because that's a cheaper source of labor or operations for managing those processes. And so we really looked at what are the things that we need to be taking out of attorney's hands. We started with intake, Obviously, that's not something an attorney needs to be doing. Then we went to hiring paralegal staff and some administrative staff as well and ended up now, I think, with what's a really nice blend. But when I came in 2019, attorneys were literally answering the phones in the door, and that just didn't make any sense. Gabriel, what do you say to the law firm owners who are so risk averse, who are at risk of being gobbled up by the legal zooms of the future? What do you say to those kind of operators? Well, if you're risk averse to not make changes to your business, when I say business to your law firm that are going to keep you competitive in the marketplace, ultimately you're just hurting yourself. And so 
you can't be an attorney who's running their own practice and a business owner. You're just not exempted from that anymore. Maybe 150 years ago when the ethical rules were so stringent, you know, before 1970, you couldn't even advertise, right? So you could get kind of get a free pass on being a business owner. But since then, the answer is no, you're competing in a marketplace. And so you got to take a, a really hard look at what do you want your future to look like? Because you don't have to go out and run your own law firm. You can work for LegalZoom or another law firm. But ultimately, I think your choice is narrow down in terms of your own ability to compete as the marketplace continues to open up more and more. I mean, you're preaching to the choir in a lot of ways. I mean, we talk about leverage all the time. We talk about automation. I'm just continually surprised by how little people pour into their firm. I think a lot of people pull out too much cash Mm. and don't think about building something more substantial. Clearly, your law firm owner has a vision of building something substantive and something that's going to last. Yeah. I mean, something that I love when I'm thinking about a business is you're actually building something, like you said, I mean, Jim Collins talks about built to last. You use that phrase as well, but something that's something to me that is really important is, you know, I don't want to build something. I don't want to be a part of something that's going to fall apart if someone leaves, whether that's the firm owner or the founder or myself, if you're going to do a great job working on a business, on any kind of an organization. It could be, I mean, I worked in nonprofit for a long time. You have to have a vision first for what it should look like and the change that that's making in the world. But once you have a compelling vision, you should want that thing to be built in such a way that it continues to execute on that vision. And to me, that's what's really cool about working. You know, I came from an organization with a really strong vision for helping at-risk kids get into college, breaking cycles of poverty. And that's an easy vision and meaning in the world to identify. But I think that really, especially in the legal industry, there's so much meaning to the work that's being done and that we fail to capture in a lot of in a lot of ways, a lot of times in terms of the benefit that we bring to people's lives through legal work. And when you look at it that way, I think that there's a lot of reason to say, well, let's build structures and organizations that outlast ourselves that are much larger than ourselves, because there's a real reason for lawyers to be doing lawyer work in the world. Like I truly believe in this industry, especially on the plaintiff side, which is where I'm in. Like I was in two car wrecks where my car was totaled and it wasn't my fault. And I didn't know that there were attorneys that would represent me against these billion dollar companies and help me get more money than those insurance companies wanted to pay me. I walked away from one of those wrecks with zero dollars in my pocket. Like that's so insane. And I'll tell anyone who will listen about that now. So I really believe that there's a reason to build law firms that are businesses that are efficient, that provide great experience because people need these services desperately. There's a a social and a moral reason to make law firms great. Yeah. And they're so disadvantaged by it. I'm glad you said that because I I had a conversation with a client yesterday and she was offered $500 by the insurance company, which is their standard thing, $500 and the payment of medical bills. It's like, get out of here. Are you kidding me? But the thing I wanted to ask you about is when it comes to numbers, like the numbers you're tracking, uh, like what are the key numbers that you all focus on on your firm? And if you want to get into KPIs for individuals, that's fine. But uh, I really want to talk about the key numbers you look at. Yeah. Well, I love numbers. And we have a scorecard that we use for our firm. Our leadership team spent a whole quarter thinking about various metrics and testing this out. And then we we brought it to the rest of the firm. And every Friday, we look at our scoreboard. So all 38 people were on our all-hands call, and that's the score that we're looking at. And to me, it's really, really important to have transparent metrics because you can tell people, hey, go do this and go do that. But if you put the scoreboard up, then they can play the game for themselves. And the great game of business, Jack Stack, 
best, one of the top five business books of all time. He's radically transparent. And I think everyone should read that and and bring it in. So that's kind of my, my pitch for why KPIs are important. We're tracking, I look at it from pipeline view. I to me, the whole law firm is a pipeline. We're, we're making something, right? Which is that we're making, we're taking raw materials, which is wage violations. And we're, we're, the output is that we're putting money in people's pockets and, and ultimately we're able to stay in business. And so at the top, you've got number of leads coming in. You're, then you've got the number of people who we're having conversations with out of those leads, open number of cases that we're opening. And then we're getting into some core metrics around case management. So how long is it taking us to get our complaints filed? How long is it taking us for to get our settlements done? And then what's the volume of settlements per month? Are we making the demands we need to make? A lot of it's been very much modeled after the auto uh, personal injury industry. But, you know, it's about beginning to end. I want a seamless view of if we're hitting all of these numbers, it means that we are taking the marketing dollars that we're spending to acquire cases. And then at the end, we're outputting dollars for our clients and for ourselves. All right, Gabriel, it sounds like you guys have a lot dialed in. You're doing a lot of things right. I want to know what's frustrating you these days. What's the current thing that you're thinking about fixing or that like your next mountain you want to climb? That's a fantastic question. And obviously, I spend almost all of my time thinking about that, not the things we're doing right. So there are some core metrics that we are not hitting the way that we want to, and they're pretty complex. And so that's what we've been focusing on as a firm for the past couple of months, because they're metrics that involve marketing intake and case management and the shifting litigation landscape around wage and hours, making it really difficult for us to get where we need to be. And so just trying to continue to find root causes, fix the issues that are upstream, wait a month, two months, see if that's working, try new things. So that's one of the big ones is fixing our metrics now that we do have our KPIs dialed in and we have a scorecard. And then I think the other thing that's ongoing is continuing to create additional clarity for everyone on the team around what the expectations are for them. And so actually right before this, we were in our attorney meeting and we rolled out what we're calling our our case managing attorney rubric. And so it's a spreadsheet. There's three rows. The rows are meeting expectations, above expectations and below. And then each column is a different area of their job. And so the idea is that anyone can self-assess how they're doing in their role any given day. I think it's way more functional than a job description, which is a bunch of narrative text. This you can go through and you can say, hey, am I above meets or below expectations in this area? So it's, you know, it's communication, it's negotiation, it's how am I doing delegating to my paralegal? You can assess that. Anyone in the firm can look at that and you're creating a lot of transparency around that. So we're developing those because again, like I try not to manage, I want to create systems and frameworks so that people can manage themselves. It's great. Jim, I cannot believe you didn't ask this. I want to know about this scoreboard, Gabriel. Like, like, tell me more about the scoreboard. And we're a hybrid model. So we've got, we're partially in office, partially high, uh, virtual. So what are your advi- what's your advice for people that are not in person for scoreboards? Well, we also are hybrid. So about 15 of our 38 folks are not here in the office. And so the scoreboard, I would love more visibility. Like I want it on a TV that you can see everywhere in the office. But the best we're getting to right now is our all hands meeting on Fridays. We pull it up, we look at it, and every number is red, yellow, or green. So you get a color coded at a glance how many greens are on the board, how many reds, how many yellows. And we're pretty brutal with ourselves. If it's within 5%, it's a yellow, but below that's a red. And it's all, so it's all on a quarterly basis. So it's going to be your quarter to dates on 
all of those metrics, except settlements were on a year to date for that. But I just think that's great. Everybody can look at it, people who are offsite or zooming in, and then you're able to, we open up with shout outs around our core values, build some good energy, and then we dive in and look at those metrics. All right, Gabriel. So if I were me five years ago, listening to you on this podcast, I'd be totally psyched right now. What advice do you have for, say, the lawyer with a paralegal and maybe an admin about who wants to build, like you said, something substantive, something legit, something that's, you know, best in class in their practice area? How do you even get started, man? Don't try to do everything at once. Sounds like they shouldn't be Jim Hacking, who has 10 ideas every day. <laughs> um, you got to be disciplined. And when I came in three years ago, nothing was like this. And I, I mean, I can look back and say, man, I've made so many mistakes along the way. Like, I should have done this faster. I should have done this different. Like, man, why did I wait so long to hire this person, fire that person, put the system into place? But I mean, look, the first two weeks that I came in, I was just trying to figure out how the phone system worked and get us on a cloud-based phone system. You know, so it's like you just take one step at a time in service of a larger vision. Bill Gates says that people always dramatically overestimate what they can do in a week and they dramatically underestimate what they can do in a year and in two years. And so I think that it's bringing those into a line like every day it's what's the vision and then trying to figure out one step that you can do to get toward that. And I would say, you know, read EOS get that framework in place and then just pick one thing and work on it for a month or three months, whatever cycle works best for you. But don't try to eat the elephant all at the same time. Love it. It's a great message. I think it's a great way to wrap up this episode too. I'm going to wrap things up before I do. I'll remind everyone to, if you want a high level conversation, join us in the guild, go to maxlawguild.com. That's maxlawguild.com. A lot of great information being shared there. We also have a huge stash of trainings in there that that are really beneficial. While you're listening to the rest of this episode, if you don't mind giving us a five-star review, we would greatly appreciate it. Help spread the love. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? All right, now, in the history of Maximum Lawyer conferences, of which we've had four, there's only been one person who asked us to never republish their presentation. And this was our good friend, Will Eady, at the very first Max Law Con. And Hold on, I'm going to cut you off. He wouldn't even let us record it. it yeah, was, we had there to is shut literally the no recording down. of it yeah. that we know of. Anyway, his topic was pillar content. In other words taking a hugely deep dive into something that's going to become the definitive web posting on that topic. And Will showed us how he'd gotten those Google snippets at the top. So that even appears above the Google results, the search results. That was amazing. But I was reminded of this this week when my friend William had a long ass post in Facebook. I'm not talking a little post. It was a long ass post. And it was a blow by blow of how he secured at trial a $750,000 nursing home bed sores verdict. $500,000 compensatory, $250,000 punitives. And I was reading it and it kept going on and on and on. Frankly, I didn't read it all. But when I got to the end, I remembered the secret talk. And if you want to see a true masterclass in how to tell a story about your case. It's the best one I've ever read. And I write a lot of them, but mine are like a quarter as long as Will's and a quarter of detail. You know, most people just say, hey, everybody, here's my friend, Sam. I just got him $25,000 in this car wreck after he got offered $500 from the shitty insurance company. And they think that's doing it. Go look, William Eady, E-A-D-I-E, 
look at the it's a master class in how to write a success story for your clients it's awesome i love it william's gonna get a bunch of friend requests over the next couple of days so i think that's yeah. fantastic if you want a master class on websites go look at his website and the content that they've created it's the volumes of, of text they've got in there are amazing and his whole thing is doing it without backlinks yeah i mean he was ranking nationally i don't know i haven't looked in a while nationally easily with no backlinks so it's it's quite quite incredible what he's done Gabriel, you're up next. Uh, as you know, we always ask our guests to give a tip or a hack of the week. What you got for us? I got one that I absolutely love. I'm a big automation guy. Mail Parser, if you haven't used it, it plugs into Zapier. If you get form emails for leads for any kind of data source, you can create a custom inbox on Mail Parser, and you can take that form data and turn that into something that Zapier can ingest and then push that into your CRM, your practice management platform, whatever you want to do with it, it can take it in. We get a thousand leads a month. I use Mail Parser for every single one of them. It probably saves us a hundred hours of manual data entry and it's worth every penny. It's like 30 bucks a month. So cheap. Yeah. Parsers of any kind. There's there's Mail Parser. There's a bunch of different brands now, but they're a huge time saver. So e-notices, like whatever it might be. There's a bunch of different different ways of using them. So that's a, that's a really great tip. So mine is for Apple users. So sorry if you're an Android user or whatever, you're, this isn't going to help you out. But I don't know if you'll know this, but there's a way of doing certain things if you just tap the, the Apple symbol on the back of your phone. And if you go into general in your settings, so general settings and then accessibility, you can do this thing where you, if you double tap the, the Apple on the back of your phone, you can do it, have it do really a variety of different things. I have it set up for like my photos. So if, I, if I'm holding my phone, if I just double tap the Apple symbol on the back of my phone, the camera pops up instantly. Um, instead of having to do anything else, I just tap, double tap. And you can do, have it do other things. So for those of you that don't know, that's like one of those little hidden secrets. And then if you go into accessibility, you can see some other things you can do as well. It's pretty cool. So if you're an Apple user, you can go do that. So Gabriel, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Um, as always, I love talking to people that are integrators. I think it's cool because you all bring in like the nuts and bolts kinds of stuff. So thank you so much for talking. Great. About it. Man, it thank great you so much for having me. Yep. Thanks, man. See you guys. Really good stuff. See you, Gabriel. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.